you and I are about to embark upon a magnificent collaboration. We are going to make history today. I'm going to do what no politician, no scientist, no philosopher has ever done. I'm going to make the whole world right. You are about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of what is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Welcome to another Oddcast featuring me, your odd man out. Thank you once again for taking the time to hang out with me. And this week, we're going to be continuing our dive on Russia, and this is The Enemy of My Enemy Part 2, and if you haven't listened to Part 1, I suggest you go ahead and do that, and then listen to this one, but if you don't know, I'm kind of taking a look at the Russian government and some of its allies, I'm just asking, are they fighting the New World Order, the Great Reset, the Klaus Schwab agenda, or are they a part of it, and I'm just trying to bring up information that some people aren't talking about and kind of trying to add everything together that we know so we can kind of come up with our own conclusions. So at the start of the show, we're going to continue a few audio clips by journalist Riley Wagaman, who lives in Russia. And he's just kind of giving us some information that maybe some people aren't familiar with. A lot of the alt media kind of thinks that Russia is on our side and Vladimir Putin is on our side. And I'm not going to tell you one way or another. I really haven't made up my mind completely. But I just want to bring this information to you guys. And in the near future, at least you will know it. And possibly it will help you in deciding who you can trust down the line. Because a lot of things are changing. A lot of things are happening. And it's a brave new world. So I won't bore you any longer. Let's get right into the show. But let's look here. He says, down here, sustainable development. Anatoly Chubias has been named President Vladimir Putin's new point man on sustainable development and coordination with international organizations after stepping down as Rusnano's CEO last week. Anatoly Chubias will be appointed as a special representative to the president of the Russian Federation for relations with international organizations to achieve sustainable development goals, said the Kremlin decree published Friday evening. Riley says, 
impeccable timing, Tobias started his new career as a developer of sustainability just as the state-funded corporation he headed for more than a decade began to rapidly implode due to its unsustainable model of nonstop thievery. And he's got an article here from Business Politics Tech. It says, State-owned tech firm Rusnano faces possible default. And then he goes on to say that Chubias became a shareholder of the Sputnik V manufacturing company. And he's got a quote from Chubias saying, On January 4th, Russia's favorite businessman hailed the teachings of Bill Gates. Discussing the book by Bill Gates, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, Chubias said that the unfolding industrial revolution is comparable in recent history, perhaps only with the information revolution that we have experienced. According to the former head of Rusnano, he has long been interested in opinions of Gates, the key founding father of this revolution. Now we're going to get into it a little bit more. And he's got an article called The Kremlin Big Pharma Alliance. The Russian government bet big on AstraZeneca's COVID shot. On July 17, 2020, Russian pharmaceutical company R-Farm announced it would produce and supply a COVID vaccine that was under development by AstraZeneca and the University of Oxford. Of course, from my studies, we've seen Oxford related to the Council on Foreign Relations and the whole network that Quigley talked about. We also see them connected to, of course, the Fabian Society, the Pilgrim Society. But it's funny how a lot of the same important things always come out of these same clubs and same universities like Chicago or like this one, Oxford. Hailing the agreement, Alexei Repkik, chairman of the board of directors of R-Farm, said his company would serve as an AstraZeneca supply hub for 30 to 50 countries, including Russia, a top priority. The drug was approved for emergency use in the UK five months later and soon after received the green light from governments around the world. But the R-Farm's plan to supply Russia with AstraZeneca doses has yet to materialize. The drug has not been authorized for use in Moscow. Luckily, R-Farm was smart enough to hedge. In June 2020, R-Farm partnered with the Russian government's sovereign wealth fund, the Russian Direct Investment Fund, or RDIF, to produce a homegrown COVID vaccine, what later became Sputnik V. RDIF is the main financer behind Sputnik V and was tasked by the Russian government to organize the production of the vaccine and promote it in foreign markets. Our farm is included in RDIF's portfolio. This means that the Russian government has a financial stake in Sputnik V's success and also AstraZeneca's sales. And he's got a couple of screenshots here from the Russian Direct Investment Fund. It says RDIF and R Farm Group join forces to fight coronavirus and produce Russia's first vaccine. And here he's got an article from Sputnik. International. It says the Russian President Vladimir Putin participated in the signing ceremony online and congratulated all of the parties. Vladimir Putin said that the intention of the Gamaleya Center, AstraZeneca, and the Russian Direct Investment Fund to cooperate 
can serve as a convincing example of joining efforts to ensure everyone's safety. In quotes, I am absolutely convinced that such an attitude towards partnership today can serve as a good, convincing example of combining scientific forces, technology, and investments for a common goal to protect the life, health, and safety of millions of people on the planet as a whole, Putin said at the signing of the memorandum, which took place via video conference. And again, there's so much on here, I couldn't possibly read it all, but I would just suggest you go to Edward Slavsquat, spelled just like it sounds, .substack.com, and check it out, and it'll be in the show notes. But it's just amazing what has been going on over there. Like, I'd never even heard that Russia was the first one to pull out the COVID-19 vaccine, let alone all these connections with Putin and these other guys. And of course, here's another article from the Moscow Times again. Several other Russian regions have followed suit and announced similar mandatory vaccination rules for service sector workers and civil servants. Here's another one. Russia issues mask and glove mandates. Moscow begins mass antibodies testing. Masks and gloves are compulsory to wear. And here from Ani News, this is a news source from South Asia's leading multimedia news agency. And this date is November 24th, 2021. Russia to register Sputnik M, COVID-19 vaccine for children aged 12 to 17. I won't read it, but I just wanted you to be aware of such things that have happened. Here's a headline from March 31st, 2021. Russia unveils world's first corona vaccine for dogs, cats, and other animals. That's by Robin Dixon and Miriam Berger. Here's an article from RT again, and that is June 2021. Human Rights Chief Slams Dishonest Mandatory Russian COVID-19 Vaccine Programs, Warning People Shouldn't Be Forced to Take the Jab. Here's another article from RT. Putin tells UN he'll give them the vaccine if they want. Offers to partner with other countries. Russia has given regulatory approval to a second COVID-19 vaccine named EpiVac Corona. After early stage studies, new COVID-19 vaccine developed by Russia's Vector Institute. And what makes it more sketchy is that this is another aspect of Sputnik V, which nobody, well, very few people talk about, or and I think not people are, are very aware of, which is that uh, the Russian government has partnered with Big Pharma during the whole, from, since day one, basically, uh, to get Sputnik V off the ground. Specifically, I mean, they've been working with Pfizer and Moderna, but specifically they signed this uh, memorandum of cooperation with AstraZeneca. And what's interesting is that Alexander Ginsberg, the, dir the director of the Gamaleya Center, basically just says that Sputnik V has no significant differences from AstraZeneca's shot. And you guys know how the head of Pfizer came out a few weeks ago and 
basically told everyone that they needed to get a fourth dose. Well, check this out. The developer of Russia's coronavirus vaccine, Sputnik V, has said Moscow should make jabs mandatory as inoculation rates remain low despite record deaths and campaigning by authorities. His call came as Russia reported a record 1,239 COVID deaths in a single day Wednesday. Only 34% of the country is fully vaccinated. Even though Sputnik V, the world's first COVID vaccine, has been widely available since December last year. Alexander Ginsberg, the director of the state-run Gamaleya Research Center that developed Sputnik V, said the pandemic will only come under control in Russia when 70 to 75 percent of the country is fully vaccinated. Russia's health minister, Mikhail Murashko, said doctors who discourage patients from vaccination could face legal consequences amid widespread reports that medics across the country have taken an anti-vaccine stand. And here's an article headline from Fintech Futures from 12-2020. Spur Bank partners with J.P. Morgan to pilot digital currency in 2021. You go down here to March 17th, 2022, and this is Reuters. And this says Russian Bank gives Spurbank license to issue exchange digital assets. And the Russian C-Bank is actually run by the state. And you pull on down here near the center of the article. It says, Spurbank Chief Executive Hermann Greff in late 2020 said the bank was teaming up with J.P. Morgan to prepare its own cryptocurrency called Spurcoin but it has yet to launch. A financial market source speaking before the Ukraine crisis unfolded told Reuters in February that Spurbank was actively preparing to launch Spurcoin. Unprecedented Western sanctions have hit the heart of Russia's financial system over events in Ukraine, and Spurbank was among the companies targeted. It was unclear, however, how sanctions and the crisis might affect Spurcoin's launch or Spurbank's partnership with J.P. Morgan. And then it just gets weirder and weirder. I mean, this is like a whole other, I don't know if you even want to go here, but then when you really get into who is behind Sputnik V and their ties to the World Economic Forum, and it literally, Russia in so many ways, like if you're someone who believes that uh, Klaus Schwab and his, you know, stooges are up to horrible shenanigans i mean russia should be like the prime it's like the most obvious country where clearly the government has been infiltrated by bad actors like it just couldn't be more obvious so with sputnik v specifically i mean you could literally just draw a straight line from this drug to klaus schwab or to the world economic forum interestingly enough one of the first sort of you know uh sponsors of sputnik v is this guy named Hermann Graf, who is an ethnic German who was born in Kazakhstan and rose to become the head of Sparebank, which is Russia's largest bank, majority owned by the Russian government. And in February 
of 2000. So right, like right when the whole COVID thing was sort of starting, like late February 2000, right when things were starting to get really weird, uh, Hermann Greff comes out and he says, look, I... Uh, just want everyone to know that Spare Bonk is really concerned about coronavirus, and we want to do two things. First thing we want to do is focus on developing technology, facial recognition technology that will identify people who are wearing masks. That was February, that was February 2020. Yes. And to, to add to that, he was like, and, and to, to, in order to do this, we should consult with our Chinese friends and find out what they're doing with their with their facial recognition systems. So that's the first thing that Sparebank wanted to do. The second thing he said is, and Sparebank is so concerned about coronavirus, we want to start funding Russian scientific institutions, research institutions, to develop drugs to fight this new virus. Drugs, not vaccines, drugs. He said generically drugs. Uh But we later learn from this process occurs, actually by May, of that same year, so like three months later, Fairbank creates a subsidiary called Immunotechnology. And this company was specifically created, specifically created to help with logistics, technology transfer, and transportation of what would soon become Sputnik V. And what ended up happening is that Hermann Greff and Sparebank ended up funding, they put down seed money for Sputnik V, and Sparebank became the sole distributor of Sputnik V, the first eight or nine million doses. Sparebank was in charge of distributing this drug around Russia. A bank, a bank was responsible <laughs> for, for transporting this drug around Russia. And Hermann Graf, who's like one of the most important and powerful people in Russia, claims that he was injected with Sputnik V in April 2020, which means that he was one of the first people in the world to allegedly get this drug. Phase wait, one wait, trial. Wait, wait. When did, like, Sputnik V came out when? In, it was approved, officially approved in August 2020. And the phase one trials didn't start until June 19th or something. So we're talking about several months before it even started, like, expedited phase one trials. Hermann Graf says that he got the shot he before. must be immortal now. He must be immortal or he's, you know, he's probably lying. <laughs> I think that's what's going on here, Tessa. And, you know, it's just, there's even more to this. I'm just sort of blanking, but it's so weird how closely connected Sparebank is to this shot. And so why should this concern us? Hermann Greff is a board of trustees member of the World Economic Forum. He's like this with Schwab. They're like best friends forever. And this guy... This is the thing about Spare Bonk is that in September 2020, so you have Butnik V is approved in August, September, next month, Spare Bonk announces that it's no longer a bank. It's not a bank anymore. It's an ecosystem of services. So they have like spare AI, spare food, spare delivery, spare sound. I'm not even making this up. The it's Uber, like a, the Uber of Russian everything. It's and literally- Wow, wow, wow. I mean, I actually didn't show, when did this happen? When did they become the hub of everything? September 2020. So right when all this, right when all this, when, you know, okay, it was by that point, it's true that lockdowns had ended in Russia because the lockdowns didn't last very long in Russia. But this was still like peak COVID craze when you had all these things, everything going online, you know, education, all these businesses getting totally wrecked. And here comes Spare Bonk. With its, you know, ecosystem of services. And you know what they're also involved in, Tessa, is that Bearbug, for some reason, is really interested in biometric identification systems. And they've already started using bio, installing biometric systems in schools in Moscow. And they're targeting the children first. And just a quick little thing that you guys can research yourselves. 
we hear Russia are big fans of gold and they're going to back the ruble with gold. Well, here's a couple of different articles from the last couple of years. One, it says Russia sells more gold than gas. Russia now sells more gold than gas as global buyers turn to safe assets in turbulent times. Here's from Reuters. Russia sells giant gold deposit to Polyus-led joint adventure. I just thought that was interesting that they're selling their gold. Now, I don't know how much they have left. They may have a lot left, but I haven't looked into that. But I want to look a little bit more at the World Economic Forum because I saw the the Politico article. The World Economic Forum freezes Putin and the Russian oligarchs out. And I personally believe that Politico is an apparatchik, if you will, an apparatus of the deep state. But anyway, we've got here, the Russian Federation and the World Economic Forum announced the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution Russia. If you go on the World Economic Forum website, We Forum here, this is We Forum from 2021, it's still up. The center is an autonomous non-for-profit organization hosted by Anno Digital Economy and will be a platform for public-private cooperation. Artificial intelligence and LOT or low T are key areas of focus for the new center. Policies and frameworks will be shared and scaled through the Global Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution Network. Russia will take a leading role in shaping the trajectory of the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Today, leaders from the Russian Federation and the World Economic Forum announced the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution in Russia. That was October 13th, 2021. If Russia has been a part of the World Economic Forum for some time and they've agreed to all those things, then are they also down with UN Agenda 21 and Agenda 2030 Sustainable Development because it seems like that works hand-in-hand with the World Economic Forum and everything they've got planned for the Great Reset. And I look here at UNEP. This is a UN website. Let's check this out. UNEP, the Environmental Program. It says the key goal of UNEP Russia's office is the development of a policy dialogue with the Russian Federation authorities responsible for elaboration and implementation of a national and international environmental policy and legislation. The office also facilitates the dissemination of UNEP programs and reports and assists the Russian Federation in developing and implementing projects, including under the framework of the Global environment facility, engaging with the state, scientific and non-governmental organizations and businesses. Cooperation with Russia is based on the agreement and cooperation between the government of the Russian Federation and UNEP, signed in Nairobi on the 16th of April 2013. The priority areas for cooperation are aimed at helping achieve the sustainable development goals with green economy as a key mechanism for doing so. Since Russia became a donor to UNEP in 2011, one of the office's key areas of work is to draw on the country's expertise and help the countries develop and carry out environmental conservation projects under Russia's official development assistance program. Then you've got the website unrussia.ru. 
And this kind of explains, and this is a Russian website, how they are connected to the sustainable development. And let's see here if we can see some of this stuff. UN in Russia, the Bulletin, translating economic growth into sustainable human development with human rights. And you can download the summary. We've got Millennium Development Goals. There's lots of documents there that you can check out. Under the tab News UN in Russia, Building Back Better, People with Disabilities Have Vital Role. Missions in Central Asia and the Russian Federation merge their efforts to collect data on displacement and mobility of the population in the region. The UN Information Center in Moscow and the World Health Organization are to support the BRICS Against COVID-19 Info Hub. You've also got the sustainabledevelopment.un.org slash member states, and you can read about Russia in there as well. And you've also got under the UNEPFI or the UN Environmental Program Finance Initiative, you've got Promotion of Sustainable Finance Mechanisms in Russia. WWF Russia is organizing a conference Promotion of Sustainable Finance Mechanisms in Russia with the financial support of the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development and the Federal Agency for the Environment under the German Federal Ministry for the Environment with the financial support of the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development and Federal Agency for the Environment under the German Federal Ministry for the Environment, Nature Conservation and Nuclear Safety. The venue is at the Marriott Grand Hotel in Moscow. Of course, that happened back in 2010. But anyway, it's just kind of interesting because we know WWF is a big supporter of the end of property rights and all kinds of horrible globalist ideas. Uh, let's see here. It says representatives of the Russian financial institutions, including the Central Bank of Russian Federations, it says, who will be there? The representatives of the Russian financial institutions, including the Central Bank of the Russian Federation, Bank for Development and Foreign Economic Affairs, and corporate banks and institutional investors. Representatives of the Ministry of Natural Resources and Ecology. Let's see who else here. Of course, representatives of the World Bank, the EBRD, and the IFC. One thing quickly I just wanted to bring to your attention. We have the website here, n.kremlin.ru, events. Okay, we have from November 12, 2021, Artificial Intelligence Conference. The president took part in the main discussion on the subject of AI technology to address social issues at the AI Journey 2021, the International Conference on artificial intelligence and data analysis. Good afternoon, dear friends. It is my great pleasure to welcome all of the spectators of our today's discussion, the technologies of AI to resolve societal tasks. It has become a good tradition for us to hold this forum in November, dedicated to perhaps the most popular and the quickest developing and most recognized topic over the past seven years, 
the technology of artificial intelligence is what I'm talking about. It is my great pleasure that it has been for the past three years that our president, Mr. Vladimir Putin, has been supporting this forum, and in no small part to his personal attention that we are having a huge upsurge in popularity of AI among our companies, among higher educational institutions. We have seen a doubling of uh, universities training AI experts over the past two years. And most importantly, we are seeing interest among school children. Okay, the master of ceremonies there you heard in the background was none other than Spur Bank leader Hermann Greff, who you heard Riley Wagaman talk about and I mentioned several times as well. And so I read through the text of Vladimir Putin's speech there, or talk, if you will, and it was pretty much run-of-the-mill kind of things that you would hear our technocrats, mainly that we need to spur on, no pun intended, the integration of AI, teach people how to use it, how to keep it under control, supposedly, and also how to collect data, the data that they need to be able to program the AI. And I think that's a big thing. And everything, of course, is veiled in good feelings, and we want to keep people safe and protect their anonymity and protect their privacy. It's just like what you would hear in the States here. But I thought it was interesting because we do have kind of an ideological idea of Russia. And I think a lot of people still think that Russia is the old Soviet Russia, backwards Russia, and it's nothing like that anymore. So anyway, I will also put this in the show notes and you guys can check out the entire speech. It's got pictures, it's got videos, documents. There's a lot there. And you heard him say that they have been doing this for quite a few years now. So if you're interested, you can check into this further. You may find more things than I've had time to look into, but I just thought I would include it in this show. Now, I wanted to mention before we go, we've heard since the invasion of Ukraine that Russia is going in to denazify Ukraine. And we learned in the series I did called Whose War Is It Anyway? that yes, indeed, there's quite a Nazi presence going all the way back to World War II in Ukraine. And of course, America, the U.S., has been funding Nazis in Ukraine since after the war. But there is a group of mercenaries called the Wagner Group. And the Wagner Group have been hired by Russia to do different things, okay? They were started by a guy named Yevgeny Prigozhin and another one named Colonel Dmitry Yutkin, or the guy they call Wagner or Wagner. And supposedly, Wagner, the Wagner Group, was named after Hitler's favorite composer, Wagner, the very famous guy. So they've worked in Somalia, they've helped Russia in Crimea a few years ago, they've helped Bashar Assad in Syria, and the thing is, Dmitry Yutkin, or Wagner, is this big menacing-looking guy with a bunch of Nazi tattoos, and I think there's a picture, maybe a couple pictures, of him and Putin, or, or at least him and several guys with Putin. But I think that's something to take into consideration since this guy obviously is Nazi-like, or at least a fan. Now, that doesn't mean all of the Wagner group are Nazis by any means. I haven't seen any proof of that. But, 
you know, it does mean that these guys and this group has worked for the Russian government. And also, it doesn't really set the Russian government apart just because they're hiring these for hire soldiers or mercenaries, because the U.S. has been doing that for years. In fact, Obama really ramped that up and never really got any credit or blame for that. So it's something that we do. Of course, we know Eric Prince in Blackwater, and there is a bunch more. But this is just something I wanted to mention. And also, former Russian mercenary lifts lid on secretive Wagner Group. This is May 21st, 2022 of this year. Merit Gabadulin is the first combatant from the private Russian paramilitary company Wagner to break rank and talk publicly about the secretive organization. He recounts his four years as a mercenary in the eastern Ukraine and Syria in his memoir, In the Same River Twice, now available in French. Gabadulin, 55, a Russian veteran with the Airborne Forces and a former bodyguard, joined Wagner in 2015. Injured in Palmyra, Syria, in 2016, he quit the unit in 2019. His memoir relates the battles waged by the Wagner Group in the Donbass. Officially, Russia bans private military companies, and Moscow denies knowledge of the Wagner Group. But human rights abuses by the Wagner fighters in Central African republics, Libya, and most recently in Mali, have been reported and denounced by France, the EU, and the UN. Rights groups have accused Wagner of carrying out war crimes in Syria. Gabadulin's memoirs were published in Russian and English earlier this year. To mark the publication of the French version, Moy Marat, ex-commandant de l'armée Wagner, he spoke to RFI's Denis Strelkov. Do you fear for your safety? My answer to this question is always very simple. It was before that you had to be afraid. Now the Rubicon's been crossed. I want as many people as possible to know how the military company works from the inside. The world must know the reality. See Wagner's real face. It's sometimes unflattering. Nothing is simple, but Wagner's image is often demonized in the press, and for good reason. What do you mean? A few years ago... Everyone was talking about a video on the execution of two Syrian militiamen. The people responsible for this execution were identified as Wagner mercenaries. And I think they were. Did you know them? Were they with you in Syria? No, I don't know them personally. All the evidence shows that these mercenaries were part of the battalions formed in 2017 on the fly, just before a major military operation in Akerbach. Very few of these new recruits had any military experience. Can you confirm that members of the Wagner Group committed war crimes in Syria? Neither I nor my colleagues nor the soldiers under my command committed any. We have no civilian blood on our hands. But you have to understand one thing. Who is a Wagner soldier? He is someone who isn't accountable, has no legal existence, no clear status. He acts with absolute impunity. He will never answer for his actions for his crimes in a court of law, so everything depends on his personality. But I would stress they are often men with military experience and no psychological problems. They are able to make good decisions in times of war. But those who join Wagner's army without military experience, where do they come from? It's hard to say, especially now with the war in Ukraine. I don't think they sift through them. 
there aren't any strict criteria for going to the front. So Wagner is still recruiting men to send to Ukraine? He asks. Yes, troops are being trained to fight in the Donbass. Three journalists were killed in the Central African Republic while trying to investigate Wagner, and you are talking openly. Why is it Wagner is letting you talk? He says, I didn't ask anyone's permission. I just think it's important to talk about this issue because the problems of private military companies are extremely important for Russia. Have you received any threats following your revelations? At the moment, I don't feel in danger because I am far from Russia, but knives are most probably being sharpened against me back there. How close is Wagner linked to the Kremlin and the Russian army? Russian law doesn't just prohibit mercenary groups. Individuals can't even possess automatic weapons. But such companies exist, so it means they are protected by the state. Who created the Wagner company? Was it the powerful Prigozhin, once called Putin's chef, and whom you know personally? I don't want to get into names. I don't see the point. But here's the simple outline. There's a man with an entrepreneurial spirit, close to the czar, and he has a commercial project abroad. He lays the project out before the czar and asks for money and means. The czar agrees and gives him what he needs, but asks him to promote his country's political interests abroad. Then he asks, Do you think the Wagner army's role in Syria was appropriate? He says, You mustn't forget that in Syria we fought the Islamic State organization, the plague of the 21st century. But I understand that by going to a fight a ferocious beast... We allowed another ferocious beast, Bashar al-Assad, to remain in power. He's a less violent and less dangerous beast, but he's still a wild beast that's caused a lot of suffering to his people, whereas his army was weak and ineffective. Next question. You explain in your book that you and your comrades were the ones on the front line, far more so than the Russian army. He says the war in Syria was won by mercenaries. All the most important military inventions were carried out by us, not the regular army. The capture of Palmyra, of Akerbat, that was us. What happened in Akerbat is very telling. We did all the work, and then we were ordered to leave the city. That's when the Russian army entered the town with the journalists. The soldiers, followed by cameras, liberated a city that had already been liberated. So, see, this is... Basically, I've heard in one of his other interviews that this is why he wanted to write the book, mainly, because he felt like he was betrayed. He felt like the Wagner Group was betrayed by the Russian government. But they're hired soldiers, so why should they care who gets the credit if these guys are getting paid? It's all about PR. And, of course, Russia, the government, they couldn't have this out in mainstream that these mercenaries were the ones that did the fighting and won the battles. Next question. Who do you think gives orders to Wagner's army? Russian generals or officers? Without a doubt, he says, and it's normal. They're in collaboration with the Russian army and the center of the command. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been possible on the ground. Troops never make decisions on their own. You left Wagner in 2019. Have you been invited to fight in the war in Ukraine? They will never let me back into Wagner. I'm persona non grata for them, but I was contacted by another private military company in September. As soon as I realized that it involved fighting against Ukraine, I told them I couldn't. It goes against my convictions, I told them frankly. But you went to Ukraine in 2015. That didn't bother you? 
Yes, but my mission in the Lugansk and the Donbass had a big impact on me. The two months I spent in Ukraine made me realize that we were being lied to a lot in Russia, that the propaganda did not correspond to reality. I even wanted to leave Wagner in 2015, but I was invited to go to Syria, a faraway Arab country that I didn't know. Fighting against Ukrainians, my compatriots, wasn't the same thing as fighting people I didn't know, so I continued. It was also about earning money. How much were you paid? At the time, it was 80,000 rubles, about 1,200 euros, during the training period. Then during the war, about 180,000 rubles a month. If you took part in combat, it was 240,000 rubles. So I just wanted to add that part in there because, of course, we hear about the denazification, but the Wagner group is led by this guy who's, everything I can find out, a pro-Nazi type of guy. Again, that doesn't mean that all of Wagner are Nazis by any means, and there's no proof of that. But I try to give you a bigger picture than what other people are giving you. And then, of course, I want you to take all this information you've heard on this show and make up your own mind. I know I say that a lot, but it's very important for me to let you know that I'm not trying to indoctrinate you. I'm trying to give you a bunch of information and let you process it yourself. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Petrodollars, electrodollars, multidollars, Reichmarks, rims, rubles, pounds, and shekels. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things today. One more thing I wanted to go over in this episode. From the Moscow Times, June 22, 2021, Russia denies it's researching brain chip AI. Russia has denied reports that it is investing in AI technology that would allow humans to control cars, planes, and nuclear power plants through microchips implanted in their brains. The Commerçant Business Daily reported Tuesday the government plans to spend 54 billion rubles, that's $740 million, on the brain-computer interface project as part of Russia's massive science, healthcare, and infrastructure spending plan. President Vladimir Putin reportedly personally approved the federal program, part of which envisions research into controlling devices with electrical signals from the brain sent to the implanted computer chips. Russia's Science and Higher Education Ministry reportedly said that the Brain Health Intellect Innovation for 2021-29's through 29's program devised by the Russian Academy of Sciences in collaboration with the Moscow State University is in its early stages of development. But later Tuesday, its press service denied that it is working on brain chip implants, saying the program had been ruled unfeasible in 2020. The Kremlin said Tuesday it was unaware of any federal program that explores implanting microchips into human brains. 
Now, we know that Swedes have been implanting microchips into their bodies willingly to replace credit cards and cash. And we know that the CIA has implanted microchips in dogs' brains. But I see this article here from Russia Beyond, and this is from way back in 2017. It says, NFC and RFID chips are slowly becoming common in Russia. Russia Beyond talked to a Moscow engineer with an implanted chip that is connected to his bank account, a Novo Sibirsk-based gynecologist who has four chips in his hands and an expert who explained what all this means. In 2015, Moscow engineer Vlad Zaitsev implanted a NFC near-field communication chip in his left hand. He was able to use it as an alternative to a subway pass card. Since then, he has upgraded to a newer version that has his bank card chip in it and lets him pay with a simple hand gesture. He is not the only person in Russia to implant a chip in his body. Another cyborg based in Novosibirsk, Alexander Volchek, who is an obstetrician gynecologist in a local hospital, has four chips and one magnet in his hands. IT specialist Daniel Litkin, who happens to live in the same town as Volchek, has a compass implanted in his chest that vibrates every time he turns to the north. Evgeny Cherchenev from the BioLink Technologies is a self-proclaimed cyborg with the chip in his hand who has a blog named Bionic Man Diary. He openly talks about the positives and negatives of having a chip as well as security issues and the practical usage of a chip. Jan Zuskov from Zelenograd had implanted chips in his hands more than two years ago. He dedicated a blog post to his life with them. There are many more people with such implants, with a majority choosing to stay anonymous. Now, the reason I wanted to mention this is because Riley Wagaman had said something in a couple of the interviews that Russia had some plans to possibly chip school children for tracking. And I looked, but I really couldn't find anything about it. He may have written about that. I'm just not sure. But it goes on to say how implanted technology can be used in real life, and it's telling you all of the things that it could do to make your life easier and whatnot. But, uh, you know, of course, it also has its negatives for sure. And you should see this guy, Evgeny Cherishinev. He looks like a real tool. But anyway, you might expect that from someone who is willingly putting these things in their body. Another interesting page I found, transhumanism-russia.ru. Russian transhumanism movement. The Russian transhumanism movement was organized in December 2003 with the goal of readying the Russian society in the emergence of transhumanist technologies. Since then, the members of the movement have participated in several scientific conferences presenting papers on different aspects of transhumanism. The movement is promoted at related seminars with immortalist and transhumanist materials distributed. And it's got a link to some of those documents. Since 2005, the movement organizes the monthly interdisciplinary seminar on transhumanism and scientific immortalism, or ISTSI. In May 2005, it was registered as a primary unit of the Russian Philosophical Society of the Russian Academy of Sciences. Thus, STSI has become the first transhumanist organization in Russia officially registered in the structure of the RAS. 
Among its members, there are many professionals from Moscow and other Russian cities working in the areas such as gerontology, cryobiology, computer sciences, etc. We are also happy to meet with fellow transhumanists from abroad whenever they happen to visit Moscow or St. Petersburg. If you are a foreign transhumanist and are coming to Russia, please let us know and we will be delighted to meet you. There's a ton of links and information on here, and I know this is not necessarily the Russian government, but it is the Russian Academy of Sciences. And this is the last one I'm going to mention. This is from the New York Post, June 18th, 2020. Russia rolls out new Orwell facial recognition tracker for school kids. Just in case the technology wasn't Orwellian enough already, in a move straight out of a Cold War spy flick, Russia plans to keep tabs on the nation's school children with a facial recognition system none too subtly named Orwell. The state-sponsored tracker, which shares its name with the 1984 author George Orwell, comes on the heels of Moscow deploying controversial software to enforce its coronavirus quarantine. The Skynet-evoking surveillance system developed by the tech firm Rusnano we've mentioned them several times in this series, will reportedly keep students safe by monitoring their movements and identifying interlopers on school property, the Moscow Times reports. Targets are identified via video and thermal imaging systems based on algorithms devised by security design firm Elvis Neotech. If that weren't dystopian enough, Orwell could be used in the future to catch kids playing hooky and even track teachers' working hours, according to local news outlet Vito Motsti. However, LB's representatives assure the public that the school databases will be stored locally to prevent leaks and that they won't add parents and students to the network without their permission. So far, the cute and totally not sinister facial recognition system has been deployed at 1,608 schools with the eventual plans to expand to 43,000. The next web reports. This isn't the only time Big Brother-esque tech has made headlines recently. Earlier this month, U.S. e-Bazaar, Amazon, prohibited police from employing its face-tracking software for a year after facing pressure amid the upheaval over the death of George Floyd in police custody. Well, that wraps up The Enemy of My Enemy Part 2. I want to thank everyone who took the time to listen and hope that the information in this show will help you in the coming months as we see what comes out of Russia and Ukraine and that whole situation. Maybe it will help you to understand some things and know who to trust. I want to thank my patrons for supporting the show. Thank you so much for your patience. I know it takes me a while to get these shows out sometimes, but I hope that it is worth it. I'm doing it all by myself, and I thank you so much. And if you want to support the show, be a producer of the show, go to patreon.com forward slash the odd man out. Thank you also to alternatecurrentradio.com, my podcasting family. You can check out my show at alternatecurrentradio.com, as well as many other great talk and music shows there. So please check them out and support them if you can. Check out also fringeradionetwork.com because they post my show and a bunch of other shows on there as well. And thank you to anyone and everyone else who's helped me in any way. I can't wait to bring you the next show. I hope you all are doing well. 
cheers, and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys. <laughs>